Hey guys. Move this back a little bit. All right. It's a big stool. I'm just a very small man. Um, how are you guys doing? Good, good. Hey, well, I am super excited to be here with you this weekend. Um, let me just introduce myself. My name is Chip. Uh, that's not my actual name, because that's not a name for a person. It's more like a name for a dog. But um, my name is Chip. My real name is Aaron. Uh, I am a, a pastor at a church in Kingsburg, California. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Kingsburg, California. All right. Those hands, those are the liars. Um, so I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor at a church in a small town in, uh, in central California. It's not like the California with the palm trees and the beaches and things like that. It's the, the California with orchards. Nothing but orchards, all right? And so um, this little farming town, I, my family and I, we, we absolutely love it there. Uh, but something that I really, really love is camp. Uh, before I was at the church that I'm at now, I actually worked at Hume's California location, um, and I ran camps there, kind of like uh, what, what Maddie does here, and, uh, and, and, and it's sweet. I love what, what happens at a, a weekend like what we have ahead of us as we get to just gather together and open God's word together and spend time together, uh, and I think some really incredible things come from that, so I'm excited to see what God does this weekend. Um, but before we jump into the word this evening, um, I think we've got a, a picture of my family that we can throw up there. You guys get to know me a little bit better. So um, that's me, that's my wife, Anna, and then those are our two boys. We've got Caleb, he's the little one there in front, and then Grant, he's the also a little bit, a little bit bigger one in the back there. So Caleb is three years old. He's all about Star Wars right now. I absolutely love Star Wars. He doesn't know that the sequel trilogy exists. He's only watched the original trilogy, all right? And so um, he's all about Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, and I end up getting hit with lightsabers a lot, which is, you know, that's a, that's a good thing about being a dad, because I hit him back with a lightsaber. Um, and uh, so... Caleb's all about Star Wars right now. Grant just discovered that Pokemon is a thing, which is super fun. Um, he's been playing uh, Let's Go Pikachu on the Switch, and he just caught Mewtwo. And by he just caught Mewtwo, I mean I just caught Mewtwo, and I got to pretend like he was the one that caught Mewtwo, and it was awesome, because I get to play Pokemon, and it's parenting. Uh, and so... Um, so those are my boys. They're a ton of fun. I'll probably share some stories about them with you guys this weekend. And then my wife, Anna, there, um, she's absolutely incredible, an incredible mom. She's brilliant. She's beautiful. Um, and my wife and I, we've been married for, for well, oh my goodness, 14 years at this point. And, um, and in that time, we've gotten to know each other pretty well, right? And there's some ways where, where Anna and I, my wife and I, are very, very similar. And there's some ways that we're very, very different. And one way that we're very, very different is that I am an optimist. Do you guys know what an optimist is? An optimist is someone who just naturally looks on the bright side of things, right? So an optimist would look at this water bottle and say that this water bottle is half full, right? My wife, however, she is not an optimist. My wife is a pessimist, right? And a pessimist is the opposite. A pessimist looks at something and looks kind of at the, the downside of it. So they would look at a water bottle like this and they would say, not that it's half full, but that it's what? Half empty. Half empty right? Half full, half empty. And actually, it's a, it's a really good thing in our marriage 
that we have each other um, because being too much of an optimist is not a great way to, to live. Optimists tend to be late all the time. Is anybody in here late all the time? You're probably an optimist because the reason you're late all the time is because you probably always tell yourself, I got time, but you don't. That's a lie, right? Um, optimists also tend similarly to being late all the time, they tend to procrastinate, right? How many of you guys are procrastinators? You wait until the night before to write that paper, to do that homework assignment. You're, you're sitting outside class where it's due and you're scribbling it down really quick because you didn't do it last night because you didn't want to take the time to do it. Yeah, you're probably an optimist because you always think, no, nah, I got time. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Uh, you don't have time. It won't be fine. You got to do it, right? And so my wife, on the other hand, she tends to, to stress out about things that maybe don't need to be stressed out about, right? Because she sees all the things that could go wrong. And, and so we, we balance each other out, and it's a, it's a healthy middle ground that we're able to find. But um, I, I say all that because the book that we're going to be looking at this weekend together, the book of the Bible we're going to be looking at is the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes can be a hard book in some ways to read especially if you're an optimist like me. It can, be, it can be a little bit difficult to work through Ecclesiastes if you're an optimist because when you first read it, on the surface, Ecclesiastes feels like, sounds like a book that's entirely pessimistic. It seems like the, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is continually just, just whining, just talking about all of these things that are just worthless and pointless, and it's kind of like um, another thing that happens in my house. I talked about Pokemon, and I talked about Star Wars, but we are not past the Pooh Bear stage of life, right? And so there's a lot of Pooh Bear that plays on the TV in my home, and who's the pessimist in Winnie the Pooh? Eeyore, Eeyore right? Oh, well, I guess it wasn't going to happen anyway, right? That's, that's Eeyore. He's the pessimist. And that's kind of what Ecclesiastes feels like. Ecclesiastes feels like the book of the Bible that is most likely to have been written by Eeyore, okay? And so we're going to look at Ecclesiastes this weekend. And what I want us to see is that while on the first look, it might seem like this book is just negative, whiny Eeyore, uh, there's actually a lot more to it. It's actually profound and it's powerful because what it does is it focuses us on the purpose of life. Okay, so we're going to open up Ecclesiastes. We'll walk through it together over the next couple of days and we'll jump in this evening. But before we do, let me pray for us. Dear God, God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this weekend that's ahead of us as we get to open up your word, as we get to learn more about, about who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us in the words of scripture. God, I pray that uh, we would just deal with this revelation of yourself, that we would deal with it faithfully, that we would study your word deeply. Father, that you would, by your spirit, open our, our hearts and our eyes and our minds to what you have for us, that we might come to know you better, that we might come to love you more, that we might come to live lives of obedience to your commandments. So Father, we, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would just bless us in it and through it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the book of Ecclesiastes. I made a couple references here to the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, but as we jump in, we're gonna look a little bit at about who that author is. So if you have your Bibles, if you've opened up to Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one, the very beginning, that's where we're gonna start this evening. In the words of the preacher, the son of David, 
king in Jerusalem. So before we're gonna get into the body of Ecclesiastes, we have kind of the inscription. This is the author signing his name right at the beginning, and how does he describe himself? It says, the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now that David that he's talking about, that's the David that you know from David and Goliath. That's the David that grew up to be King David, king over Israel, king over God's people. And David had a son whose name was Solomon. Solomon. And Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is the man who's writing what we are going to study this weekend. It's the word of God delivered to Solomon and written down for us, all right? And so Solomon is, who is he? We know that he's king, it's referred to here as the preacher. In the video that you guys just saw, who represents, who represents Solomon? Oh. Yeah. Um, the guy that did the AI. The guy that did the AI. Yeah, his name was Adam Campbell, right? He's this kind of like um, Tim Cook, um, Steve Jobs, like tech Elon Muskie kind of whatever that, Muskie, that's not, that means something different. Um, but he, he's that, that character, right? And the reason he's represented as that is because maybe like a, a Steve Jobs is the closest thing that we can think of, or maybe an Elon Musk is the closest thing that we can think of today to what Solomon actually was. See, Solomon's not just some, some, uh, figure in mythology. He's a real man who really lived, and we know some real things about him. So who was Solomon? What was he like? Well, first, what you need to know about Solomon is that he was incredibly, incredibly wealthy. Solomon had riches beyond measure. As, as scri the scriptures, as the Bible describes all of Solomon's riches, People have gone in and they've crunched the numbers, they've done the math to take what it describes in, in his riches thousands of years ago to what that would be equivalent to, what that would equal today. And the number that they've come up with is that Solomon, his, all of his possessions, all of his riches are worth $2.1 trillion. $2.1 trillion with a T, all right? Not million, not billion, $2.1 trillion. Let me put that into perspective for you. That means that Solomon had eight times the wealth of Elon Musk. That means that Solomon had a net worth that was 15 times that of Jeff Bezos. That means that Solomon could buy everything that Mark Zuckerberg owns and every dollar to Zuckerberg's name and then he could do it again, and he could do it again, and he could do it again until he bought Mark Zuckerberg 18 times. That means that Solomon had wealth that would make him equivalent to over 20 Bill Gateses, okay? That's how rich King Solomon was. He had an absolutely unimaginable amount of wealth absolute unimaginable amount of wealth, infinite money. You couldn't spend that much money in your lifetime if you tried, all right? Solomon has all of the money. He also had an incredible amount of power. He wasn't just a, a, a rich guy, he was a king. He was a king over a mighty nation, a nation that had spent generations conquering every enemy that was in their path. 
He, he, was, he was king over this nation that had the favor of God and had conquered mighty kingdoms. It was this world power that Solomon ruled over. He was rich, he was powerful, and scripture also tells us that he had all of the, the women that his heart could desire. It actually says, and this is crazy, but this is what it says. It said that he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. A concubine is, is similar to a wife, but they're not elevated to the status of, of princess or queen. So he has a thousand women, all right? So Solomon has everything that this world would tell you to seek after. He's got all of the money that anyone could ever want. He's got an incredible amount of power. Um, he, he's a man who could spend time with another wife every night and it would take him three years to actually see all of his wives, okay? This is a guy who on the earthly level had absolutely everything, everything that anyone could hope for, everything that anyone could want, but then what's his conclusion? What does he say about all of that stuff that he had? Well, he says this, he says very simply that it is all meaningless. So let's read the first section of Ecclesiastes. I read verse one, but let's start now in verse two and read through to verse 11. Ecclesiastes one, two through 11. This is what Solomon says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Now that word vanity, right? Sometimes we use it, vanity might mean that, you know, you, you care a lot about what you look like. It's all kind of surface level. But in this sense, when he says vanity of vanity, that word that's translated vanity could also be translated vapor. Vapor. It's like when you go out on a cold day and, and you breathe out and you see the, the, the fog, right? You see the mist of your breath in the air. That's vapor. And as soon as it's there, it's gone. As soon as you see it, it's gone. It disappears. And here Solomon is saying, that's what all of these things are like. It says vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? As generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. All this stuff is temporary, he says. Verse five, the sun rises and goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuit, the wind returns. All the streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. He's talking about all of these things. It's all meaningless. It's all temporary. It's all pointless. It's all going in these circles, right? The water comes down the stream. It flows out to the sea. And then the streams are never empty and the sea is never full right? This constant flow of things. The sun goes up and it goes down and then it comes up again. It's all meaningless. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we strive, no matter how much we build up for ourselves, the world just keeps on going on. 
Nothing is forever. Verse eight, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. It's exhausting just talking about it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. For what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So he paints this picture of of a world in which nothing lasts. Nothing is forever. It's all this endlessly repeating cycle that it's striving after wind, it's trying to chase the wind, it's like we're running on this, this hamster wheel and no matter how hard we work, nothing ultimately changes. It's a picture that Solomon, this man who has everything, is painting of the world. And it makes me think a little bit of when my three-year-old Caleb asks me to play with blocks. Have any of you guys ever played with blocks with a three-year-old? Let me tell you, I, I, I feel King Solomon when I play with blocks with my three-year-old, because this is how it works, right? He wants me to build a tower, and he says, Dad, can we play with blocks? And I go, sure, buddy, let's play. And we build a, a tower out of blocks, and it's really cool, and the tower stays up for like 0.25 seconds. And then Caleb turns into little Godzilla, right? And he, and he smashes through the tower, and it all comes crashing down. And then he goes, build the tower again. And I go, I don't know, but he goes, daddy, build the tower again. And I go, okay. And so I spend five minutes building that tower and it's awesome and it's beautiful and I'm very proud of it. And then Caleb turns into Godzilla and it happens all over again. And then he asks me, daddy, build the tower again. And I go, no, I don't want to. And he goes, ah, and I go, okay, I'll build the tower, just don't cry. And this happens over and over and over again. And it's vanity. The towers, it is vapor in the wind. As soon as it's there, it's gone. And my, my toil and my striving and my work in building that beautiful tower, it all comes crashing down again. And that's what Solomon is talking about in this world. All the pursuits of this world, they're like me building a tower that just comes crashing down. And he goes even further. He doesn't just say that all this is pointless. He says that there's not even a lasting memory of it. I didn't even take a picture of the tower on my phone before it got destroyed. It's not even a lasting memory. He says, if there's anything new, it's been done before and we've just forgotten. Because there's no remembrance of former things. Even the remembrance of things does not last. How many of you guys have ever moved away from your friends. Has, that, has anyone ever done that? That could be a really hard thing. And it can be really hard to move away from a friend group, but sometimes it's even harder to go back and visit. Maybe you've been away from a group of friends for a year, and then you go back and, and you visit them, and it can be hard because what you realize is that their lives kept going on after you left. And in your mind, they've frozen 
right? They, they're still exactly the same as they were a year ago when you used to hang out with them every day. But, but when you go back, you, you realize, no, things have changed. Relationships have changed. There's, there's inside jokes that I'm not on the inside of anymore. They, they've moved on in their friendship and their life. And, and sometimes I feel like I'm forgotten in that relationship. That's what Solomon's talking about here. He says, even the remembrance of things doesn't last. The reality is in, in any of our, of our friendships, in, 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 in anything that you do, if, you're, if your life revolves around sports, maybe you're a, an incredible athlete, an incredible baseball player, you know, if you were to leave your baseball team, that absence would be felt for a little while, but in a year or two or three, that baseball team is still gonna be going on and there will be no remembrance. And so do you see what I mean about Solomon coming off like a pessimist? Because <laughs> this is, something that can be really discouraging, isn't it? This, this is some negative stuff that he's saying, hey, all of these things, no matter what we do in this world, it's all temporary. It's all meaningless. It's all pointless. None of it lasts, and not even the memory of what was done is going to last. But here's the thing that you need to know about Solomon. See, Solomon wasn't just rich and he wasn't just powerful. Solomon was also called the wisest man who ever lived. See, he wasn't just rich and he wasn't just powerful, he was also incredibly smart, all right? So he's Elon Musk rich, he's, um, I don't know, Genghis Khan powerful, and he is Stephen Hawking smart. So if we look at the book of 1 Kings, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. 1 Kings 4, 29, it talks about Solomon's wisdom. It talks about his learning. It says this, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all of the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men. He was wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, than, um, and Haman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. And he also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and of his songs, they were 1,005, and he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish, and the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon was so smart, so wise, so well studied, he had learned so much that people came from all over the world just to learn from him. See, Solomon didn't just have material things in his wealth, he didn't just have power, he didn't just have um, all of the, the relationships that he could want, he also had all of the wisdom and all of the knowledge and all of the learning to the point that everyone from all over the world wanted to come and sit at his feet and learn from Solomon. So Solomon instead of all of those other things, all of, all of the stuff that it was meaningless and it was vanity, but what does Solomon say of his learning? 
What does Solomon say of his wisdom? Well, Ecclesiastes 1.16, we see this. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had, gr- has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. Jumping down to chapter two, verses 14 and 15, it says this, the wise person has his eyes in his head and the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said to my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. So here's what Solomon's saying. I have all the wealth, all the power, all the women. It's pointless. It's vanity. It, it is temporary and it gains me nothing. I have all the, the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the learning. But you know what? The same thing happens to the wise and studied and smart person like me as happens to the fool. The same event happens, and what is that? It's death. So what's the point? What's the point? So what is Solomon's point? Why is he saying this? Why is he sharing it? Why is he writing it down so that thousands of years later, you and I might read it? Is it so that we can walk away from this place depressed? And so that we can walk away and go, there's no point, there's no purpose, everything's meaningless, anything I put my mind to, anything I pour my heart into, anything I strive after and work after, it's all gonna fall apart, it's all gonna fall short. If I put my life towards becoming an athlete, one day I might just break my leg and never recover and never compete again. If I put all of my time towards study, that ultimately that doesn't get me anywhere. If I amass all the riches in the world, it's still empty and meaningless and temporary. Is is Solomon writing this to discourage us from working hard, from, from striving because it's all just striving after wind? Is his point that life is meaningless? Well, I think this is Solomon's point. I think his purpose in writing this is that we might understand this simple fact. Life under the sun is meaningless if life under the sun is all that there is. I wanna say that again because it's important that you hear exactly what I'm saying. Life under the sun is meaningless if life under the sun is all that there is. Now what do I mean by life under the sun? Life under the sun is life in this world. It's the things that you can see and you can hear and you can feel and you can taste and you can touch. That's life under the sun. Life in this world. And Solomon's saying, look, if all that is real is what is before us, if all that really truly exists is what we can see and hear and feel and taste and touch, if that's everything that is real, then none of it is meaningless because it's all temporary. If this is all there is, then this doesn't mean anything. But, 
If there's something more, if there's something beyond what is under the sun, if there's something bigger and greater and more glorious, then not only does that mean that we have something to live for beyond this life, but it gives this life, the here and the now, it gives this life meaning. If life under the sun is all there is, then life under the sun is meaningless. But if there's more than what is under the sun, then life under the sun has great meaning. If this world is all there is, if nothing lasts, then nothing matters. And Solomon's words in 114 are true when he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. See, we live in an age where increasingly people believe that what is under the sun is all that there is. Today, there are so many people that think that what is under the sun is all that there is, and they spend their whole lives striving after wind. They spend their whole lives trying to get all of the things that Solomon has. And when they finally get those things, you know what they realize? They realize the same thing Solomon did. It's all empty. If you go onto YouTube and you search depressed celebrities, you're gonna find an incredible amount of results of these rich and famous and talented people of, of, of all generations, all different industries. You'll find social media influencers and you'll find musical artists, you'll find actors and actresses, you'll find politicians, you'll find wealthy, powerful, famous people, and you'll find videos of all of them talking about how depressed they are, how sad they are, how lonely they are, how anxious they are, how meaningless their lives feel because they've spent their lives striving after wind and following all of these things under the sun only to find that it's all vanity. All the time you hear more and more statistics about how teenagers and, and junior hires, preteens today, that, that there is growing, a growing lack of purpose. That, that they're growing in depression and anxiety and all the things that come with that. And a recent study I was looking at says that less than 20% of teenagers have a clear sense of purpose, and then that lack of a sense of purpose leads to that depression and that anxiety, that loneliness. But here's the thing, what is under the sun is not all that there is. What is under the sun is not all that there is, because if we look all throughout scripture, but in places like Ephesians chapter four, verse six, it says this, there is one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. See, what is in this world is not all that there is because there is a creator of this world who is over this world, who rules over this world. And in John chapter one, verse three, it tells us that everything that was made was made by him, and without him, not anything that is was made. That he made everything with just the power of his words. In Psalm 24, verse one, it tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
the world and the fullness thereof. See, he not only made everything, but he owns everything. He rules and he reigns over everything. And then in Romans 11, verse 36, it says that from him and through him and to him are all things. You see, the God who made everything, who owns everything, who rules over everything, he made everything for him, from him, through him, and to him. He not only made it, he not only made it by his power, but he made it for a purpose. See, to means that everything that exists was made with direction. Everything that exists was made with purpose, for a purpose. And that includes me, and that includes you. See, the God of the universe who made everything by the power of his words, who rules and reigns over the universe, he made you on purpose, he made you for a purpose. And so, because there is a God who is not under the sun, but who rules and reigns over everything, who made you for a purpose, your life is about more than what is under the sun. And it is that God who rules and reigns over all, who gives purpose to your life. It is that God who gives purpose to life in the here and now, to life in this world. Everything under the sun, everything in this world is meaningless when it's detached from that higher purpose. Just like if you take a puzzle piece, you find a puzzle piece on the ground You don't know the puzzle that it fits into. You haven't seen the picture on the box. It's meaningless. But when you understand the big picture, that puzzle piece takes on meaning. It takes on purpose. So what does this all mean? Does this mean that your relationships, your hobbies, your desires, your dreams, your hopes, your plans in this world are meaningless? Does it mean that your life is pointless? No. It means that your life has great purpose and great meaning and great value. And I know that some of you, you don't see that and you don't feel that. But the reality is that your life has great meaning and purpose and value. But until you know the God that you were made by and the God that you were made for, You will never feel that purpose and meaning and value and your life will always feel like chasing after wind. Because apart from that God who made you by and through and to himself, your life is chasing after wind. This sense of purpose, this understanding of our meaning, the Bible calls this wisdom that is from above. And in Proverbs chapter nine, it says that the beginning of this wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is something that sometimes we, we misunderstand when we talk about it. We don't mean that, that you're supposed to be afraid of God, like he's the boogeyman who's gonna pop out and get you. We're talking about a, a, an awe of who God is being amazed and astonished by God's power, by his might, by his love, by his mercy. 
And see, when we have a knowledge of the God that made us, when we have an understanding and an appreciation, an amazement at his might and his power and his love and his grace and his mercy, then we can begin to understand our purpose. But without that, all the things that we're living for are a vapor. They're like our breath on a cold day. So here's the question I wanna leave you guys with tonight. What are you living for? What are you spending your life in service of? What do you seek after? What do you strive after? Are you living your life with eternal, powerful, everlasting purpose, or are you chasing after the wind? The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has written eternity on our hearts. That all of us desire a bigger, eternal, powerful purpose. But if you look to find that purpose in sports, in academics, in friendships, in relationships, in money, in power, in wisdom, you're going to find that you've spent your life building something that's just gonna crumble down? Do you have eternal, lasting purpose? Do you know what it is? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you offer us purpose. That purpose can be found in the knowledge, the fear, the love of you. God, I pray for these students in here. I pray for those who maybe are feeling a lack of purpose who may be feeling lonely or depressed or anxious, who maybe don't see what the purpose of their life is. God, I pray that they would not be discouraged, but they, they would see the true purpose, lasting purpose, life-giving purpose can be found in you and only you. God, I pray that you would give us all that purpose by the power of your word, the power of your spirit working in us and through us and on us, that we might come to know you and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.